Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode features graphic depictions of violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. It was the afternoon of April 15, 2013, and in Boston, Massachusetts, couples, families, friends were taking in the day on Boylston Street at the annual marathon. Runners were eyeing the end of the race, while other runners were celebrating victory. But in an instant, that changed with an act of terrorism. This is Method and Madness, Episode 14, The Boston Marathon Bombing. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The Body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. How many times a day do you think you're captured on surveillance video? Running your errands, driving to work, grabbing a coffee, doing the typical day-to-day. Is it something you even think about? Probably not. And you'll most likely appear on surveillance countless times throughout your life, right? But how often would you say that you're captured on that video, breathing the same air, walking past, maybe politely nodding to a stranger who is pure evil. Let's dive in. Boston, Massachusetts, on the surface, known for the bar Cheers and for Fenway Park, home of the Red Sox, a city that gave us President Kennedy, Captain America Chris Evans, the bands Boston and Dropkick Murphys, and set the scene for movies from Goodwill Hunting to the departed. But Boston's also rich in history, located about 40 miles north of Plymouth, where the Pilgrims first settled, and a city that went on to have a central role in the Revolutionary War. And for runners, Boston is the home of one of the toughest marathons, but a very prestigious one. Held on Patriots Day, which is recognized in both Massachusetts and Maine, it's a day which commemorates the start of the Revolutionary War, the 1775 battles of Lexington and Concord. Before we get into today's case, a little of the marathon's history to paint the picture and describe the tradition. The marathon's first run was in April 1897. It was created by John Graham, a Boston Athletic Association member and Olympic team manager who was influenced by the 1896 Olympics in Athens. The marathon began as a 24-mile run 
from a starting line in the dirt at Metcalfe's Mill in Ashland and ended at the Irvington Oval in Boston, with a total of 18 runners taking off when an official yelled, Go! The length of the marathon was extended to 26 miles in 1924 to meet the Olympic standards. And the starting line was moved to the town of Hopkinton, west of Boston, where it would stay for the next century. The Boston Marathon was the first to include a wheelchair division, introduced in 1975, when 23-year-old Bob Hall asked the association for permission to participate. On April 14, 2013, the day before the annual marathon, runners and their friends and families were visiting Boston, some of them for the first time, taking in the sights and sounds, the history, visiting Fenway Park, seeking out the best restaurants in the city, and posting their photos to social media. It was a big deal, a marathon that runners would try and qualify for as early as September 2011 an experience that many runners had on their bucket list. And depending on your age bracket, in order to run, you had to meet qualifications on running speed and be registered for the race by September 2012. Television coverage was available for those who wanted to watch and be updated at home. And if you were particularly interested in knowing the status of a specific runner, you could receive alerts via text or email. Boston was ready, and the weather forecast for the next day looked ideal. April 15th, 2013. The 117th Marathon in Boston. Runners were prepared for the 26.2-mile course, traveling through Ashland, Framingham, Natick, through Wellesley College's Scream Tunnel, then into the Newton Hills and through Boston College. Its finish line, brightly painted in yellow and blue, was on Boylston Street. It was a clear day, a low of 40 degrees with a high of 54 that Monday, and the marathon began after a 26-second moment of silence to honor the victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, which had occurred four months earlier, one second for each of the lives taken. The Mobility Impaired Division started the race at 9 a.m., and the Wheelchair Division had its start at 9.17, followed by the Elite Women's Race, the Elite Men, and finally, all other runners began at 10.20 a.m., Eastern Daylight Time. There were 23,336 participants that day from all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and 92 countries, with an average of 500,000 spectators, making it the most viewed sports event in New England. Some runners were there to challenge and push themselves, and some, like marathon regular Paul Carmona, was running for a cause— to raise money for Champions for Children in Texas, a group that fights pediatric cancer. Spectators lined the route and could travel by public transportation easily to catch a glimpse of their runners at various spots throughout the course. They gathered at Cleveland Circle, Coolidge Corner, and Kenmore Square. They'd stand on the sidelines or on bridges, out apartment windows, and cheer on the runners, holding up signs for encouragement and offering water. Spectators could hang out on Boylston Street to see the climatic end of the race and celebrate at one of the bars that faced the street. 
And within a few hours, the men's race, women's race, and women's and men's race of the wheelchair division had its winners. Lalissa Desissa of Ethiopia, Rita Jeptu of Kenya, Hiroyuki Yamamoto of Japan, and Tatiana McFadden of the United States. But their victories would be overshadowed by the afternoon's events. By that afternoon, approximately 2.49 p.m., there were still 5,600 people running the marathon. On Boylston Street, as runners pushed through the last mile of the course, they crossed the finish line, cheers of onlookers ringing out. But the enthusiasm, sense of accomplishment and pride would come to an abrupt halt there in the heart of Boston. Runners were entering that last stretch down Boylston Street, past the architectural beauty of the Trinity Church at Copley Square, about to feel that runner's high of accomplishment, dressed in their bright fluorescent shirts, donning their racing bib, which displayed their assigned number. And the first mother-daughter wheelchair team, Christine and Kayla Bigiotti, were almost finished as the course clock above the finish line showed a time of 4 hours, 9 minutes, and 43 seconds. Up until that moment, it had been a very good day. But then, at 2.50 p.m., right there on Boylston Street, an explosion, followed by a second explosion 10 seconds later, both within 100 yards of each other. The blasts were loud, coming from the sidewalk along the course, and some runners kept going as they assumed it was some sort of firework display, marking the end of the race. Others thought it might have been a sudden gas leak or a blast from a transformer. Smoke filled the air and a haze covering the waving flags that moments ago were bright against the clear blue sky representing the countries in attendance. Spectators were startled, confused. As the realization set in that this was not celebratory pyrotechnics, obvious by the impact, the barricades that were shot into the street, the sudden injuries and bloodshed, people gripped with fear began screaming, running from the scene. It became quickly clear that this was an act of violence. The thunderous booms and the billowing smoke were a result of bombs. An attack was happening and more explosions could be imminent. Parents grabbed their children and frantically ran away. 35-year-old Brian Clark, who was there supporting his wife Demi, grabbed his two young daughters under his arms and ran. Safety was sought at nearby businesses. 46-year-old Denise Spinard of New Hampshire felt a sharp pain in her side and thought she was shot. She ran into a restaurant, out the back exit with a friend, where they flagged down a car to get to the hospital. 
first responders on hand to care for and treat any injured runners or spectators rushed into the panicked scene, where confusion and carnage had taken over Boylston Street, and additional medical staff were being urgently called in. Some runners were knocked down by the blast, while other runners, some who had prepared for this day all winter, weren't sure if they should stop or keep going. Bystanders reported feeling a huge shock to their face and extremities that were suddenly wet, the wounds from the force of the shrapnel pouring down blood. Cries of victims and onlookers were yelling, we need help, fear in their eyes, and spectators, runners, and first responders scattered to assist those in need, tearing down the temporary barricades that separated the sidewalks from the road. The reality was setting in, and one man could be heard on cell phone video saying, we've been attacked. Frightened and unable to walk, those with severe injuries to their legs or feet lie on the ground hoping and praying for help, while others stepped forward and dragged them to safety. The force of the bombs blew out the front window of the nearby LensCrafters and of the business next door, Marathon Sports, a sporting goods store. The blast destroying a bench inside where an employee stood watching the runners. Hit in the face with the horrific events, staff there began to grab clothing off the racks to make tourniquets for the injured. The store itself became a triage center for the injured that day. Blood spatter everywhere, and staff took the injured in for cover in case of another explosion. Outside on the street was a gory scene of blood and broken glass, screams of agony. Those helping others knelt on the blood-soaked sidewalks to offer victims comfort until medical assistance could arrive. Some removed their own clothing to make bandages for those that were bleeding. There were body parts and limbs lying about, the cries of people with severed limbs. The air smelled of rotten eggs of sulfur. People standing close to where the bombs had gone off had their eardrums ruptured and felt a sudden loss of hearing and vertigo. One man described that at first he thought he had walked into a pole when the explosion knocked him down, and some people ran out into the street, having a sense that it might be safer there. Firefighters extinguished people who were on fire, and first responders were loading the injured into wheelchairs and onto stretchers. Some responders picked up the injured and carried them in their arms to an ambulance. Married couple Adrian Haslett Davis and Adam Davis, both 32 years old, had been walking hand-in-hand down Boylston Street, enjoying the sights when the second blast occurred just four feet from them. It shot them both into the air, and they came down hard together, badly injured. Adrian, a dancer... Her ankle was blown away, and that she dragged herself to a nearby restaurant in agonizing pain until a man came along, tied a tourniquet around her leg, which made it go numb. This was a moment in which she was finally met with some relief. Runner Catherine Hearn was coming down Boylston Street toward the finish line when the second blast occurred, and she knew immediately it was right near where her husband Alan and children Abby, 10, and Aaron, 11, were standing. 
She ran faster to the finish line to get to her phone to call her husband, panicked, to find out if her loved ones had made it away safely. Her son Aaron had been injured, his leg shredded by shrapnel from the second explosion. People nearby wrapped his leg in fabric, and he was loaded into an ambulance headed to Boston Children's Hospital, where he later recovered. Although the scars, both physical and emotional, have yet to heal. 27-year-old Jeff Bowman, a local man there to root for his girlfriend, was standing near the finish line when the first explosion happened and lit his shirt on fire and blasted his legs off below the knees. Another attendee, 52-year-old Carlos Arredondo, who had been standing across the street handing out American flags, jumped into action, running toward the danger. He cleared the path for rescue workers and ran across the street, where he jumped the barrier, separating the sidewalk and the street. He saw Jeff laying there on the sidewalk, begging for help. Carlos put out the fire on Bowman's chest with his bare hands. An emergency room physician, Alan Panter, tied a tourniquet on Jeff Bowman while Carlos used a piece of fabric to tie one on the other leg. Jeff was soon wheeled away in a wheelchair, with Carlos there running alongside the wheelchair and keeping the fabric of one of the tourniquets out of the way of the wheels, a moment captured in a now-famous photograph. Carlos helped him into the ambulance, and Jeff lost an enormous amount of blood that day. But his life was saved at Boston Medical Center. Unfortunately, due to his catastrophic injuries, he had both legs amputated later that day. Those injured were so focused on their pain, the excruciating pain, that it wasn't until they were loaded into an ambulance that they looked around and realized the devastation, the impact of the explosions, and how many people were hurt, how much blood was present. And with so much chaos, many had dropped their belongings and couldn't find their cell phones, unable to call loved ones to find out where they were or to let someone know that they were okay. The uninjured, those who were out of harm's way but close enough to know what had happened, were stopped from going near the scene. Law enforcement was in the process of securing the area. The not knowing in those initial first hours, not being able to reach a loved one, only added to people's agony, and many of them posted on social media, hoping someone out there would be able to locate their missing friend or family member. It was an overwhelming scene, and the heroism of those who ran toward the explosions to help was an inspiration amidst such horror. So many people jumped into survival mode and went above and beyond. Even those without any medical training were saving lives, putting their own clothing on top of the wounds of complete strangers so they wouldn't have to see the extent of their own injuries. Boston police cleared Boylston Street to start their investigation, keeping the perimeter clear. There was no telling just yet if more bombs were going to be discovered and safety and securing evidence was paramount. What police knew rather quickly was that the horror was the result of two bombs placed near the finish line. Residents in and around Boston were eager to provide any help they could, with hundreds offering up their homes for travelers who were now stranded. 
the outpouring of help and support was incredible. It was later determined that there were more than 260 people injured, filling the beds at Boston Medical Center, Massachusetts General, Tufts Medical Center, and other area hospitals. The most critically injured faced multiple surgeries and years of recovery, and a total of 17 people had lost limbs. The devastation included the three people that were killed by the two bombs— 29-year-old Crystal Campbell, a restaurant manager from Medford, was standing in front of Marathon Sports, near where the first bomb exploded. After the blast, she said to her best friend Karen, My legs hurt. Her last words. She was brought in on a stretcher to the medical tent that was on site, where Tufts Medical Center nurse Stephen Segatori treated her spoke comforting words, and performed CPR with the help of the paramedics. But her injuries were too severe, and she had bled to death in about a minute. 23-year-old Lu Lingzi, a Chinese transfer student attending Boston University, had been hesitant about going to the marathon that day when her best friend asked, saying she should really stay home and study. Lingzi finally agreed, and they stopped the Apple Store before arriving at Boylston Street. They stood near the finish line, and when the first blast happened, Lingzi panicked and wondered out loud if they should move. It was the second blast that sent Lingzi and her friend Dan Ling Zhou flying into a fence. Lingzi died from massive blood loss within seconds to a minute. Not far from where Lingzi had been standing was the Richard family from Boston, Father Bill, Mom Denise, and their three children. They had, moments before the explosion, been eating ice cream and watching the runners cross the finish line. Their eight-year-old son, Martin, was killed, also by loss of blood, as a result of the horrific injuries sustained. By the end of the day, of course, Boston police had all hands on deck. And our four-legged friends were there on the scene, the canine units in attendance, to aid in the investigation of the explosives. Additionally, the FBI were brought in, with hundreds of agents from all over the country, but they had their work cut out for them. There was evidence collecting, securing the area, and ensuring the safety of the people of Boston, plus tightening security around the country in case there were other planned attacks. And perhaps most importantly finding those responsible for the marathon bombings. It wasn't going to be easy. Cell phones weren't working as so many people were trying to phone loved ones. The FBI were having trouble communicating with each other and with local law enforcement. Agents were setting up a command center in the ballroom of the local Weston, and landline usage there was limited to the one phone that was hardwired. Boylston Street was a crime scene, divided up into grids, and each piece of evidence was carefully recorded by a GPS device to identify the precise location. Twice a day for the next several days, the FBI flew the collected evidence to Quantico for forensic analysis. Even by that night, the evening of April 15th, key evidence was discovered, including the bottom of a pressure cooker, which it was later determined 
had been used to make one of the homemade bombs. It was found on the roof of a local business. The blast had propelled it that far into the air. Pressure cookers were a choice for bombers because the lid is tightly sealed, which increases the force of the blast. The name of the manufacturer of the pressure cooker found on the rooftop, Fager Company, was still visible on the product. This could be significant in finding the bomber. Were there fingerprints? Who purchased it? One group of agents were assigned to do nothing but track all purchases of the specific item that had been made in the Boston area. Over the next few days, the physical evidence collected included shredded pieces of fabric, which were believed to be from the backpacks which were used to transport and conceal the two bombs, debris, the nails, BB pellets, and pieces of shrapnel, which were all used to pack the pressure cooker, and which were intended to cause the most damage possible. Other evidence collected were wires, which were used to make the bombs go off, and a triggering mechanism. It was theorized that based on the evidence collected, that law enforcement were dealing with the effects of what appeared to be improvised explosive devices, or IEDs. Clues were found in the smoke that billowed out from the explosions. The color of the smoke, white, indicated that the bomber or bombers may have used what's referred to as smokeless explosives, rather than a military-style explosive like C4. The chemical makeup of the explosion was analyzed by testing post-blast debris. Hard to think about, but Physical evidence was also collected from the victims. The shrapnel and nails and BB pellets extracted from the injured and the deceased at the area hospitals proved that the wounds were provided by the fragments of the bomb itself and not from environmental elements. The chemical traces taken from the components of the bomb were analyzed and compared to signature bomb materials which are stored in the FBI database. If a match were to be made, it could possibly indicate a connection to places like Afghanistan or Iraq. Communications were to be monitored. Chat rooms in jihadist websites or anyone else talking online about the attacks. And of course, hundreds of tips phoned in were looked into as well. Spectators had significant evidence, too. Those that took photos or recorded video of the events leading up to the attack and after the explosions were urged to send the FBI whatever they had to help them identify who the bombers were and to help create a timeline of the events. Tens of thousands of photos and video were received and agents had to comb through hours of footage. Most significant, however, turned out to be surveillance footage that ended up all over the news and right into all of our living rooms three days later. And that was the video and still photos of two men walking through the crowd minutes before the explosions. Captured by security cameras positioned outside banks, stores, and other businesses along Boylston Street, investigators spotted something of interest in those few minutes before the explosions occurred. There were two men walking the sidewalks, not 
watching the runners, not celebrating, and most of all, not running in fear after the devastation. No, these two were calm and simply walked away. We are releasing photos of these two suspects. They are identified as suspect one and suspect two. They appear to be associated. Suspect one is wearing a dark hat. Suspect two is wearing a white hat. Suspect two set down a backpack at the site of the second explosion just in front of the Forum restaurant. Next time on Method and Madness. The aftermath of the terror attack of April 15th, 2013. The faces of the two men responsible. The race to capture them. And I'll dive into how the bombers were ultimately identified and exactly what their steps were that day. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a review wherever you listen. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.